How about if I just start at the beginning? <laughs> you can you can be honest. Because <laughs> you know what? They have the sweat equity that went into that memory that they're making with their friends and family. And that's what's important with us, and that's what the I Am Real World's about. Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the best things about a spring food plot is you get a second chance if it fails. Chasing Giants with Don Higgins. Brought to you by buyafarm.com, your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. By tapping into Don's years of experience, dedication, and commitment, Chasing Giants focuses on the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Now, here is Don and co-host Terry Peer. Well, thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Chasing Giants, brought to you by Biofarm.com. I'm Terry Peer with Don Higgins in a packed house at the Higgins Estate for the last master class of the year. Yeah, I think this is the biggest one of the year, Terry, no doubt about it. Um, trying to think of all the states we have represented here, uh, West Virginia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, Kentucky, Illinois, Missouri, Iowa. Who did I miss? I, I had to miss somebody. There's a big crowd here. New Hampshire. Did I hear New Hampshire? I got earmuffs on. I can't hear very good. New Hampshire. Any any place we missed? Well, welcome everybody. Yeah, this is this is pretty exciting. Um, you know, the show is called Chasing Giants, but t- earlier today I was hauling giants. Because as you were finishing up at the office today, I made a run down to Mr. Kibler's taxidermy and picked up Mel and hauled him back here for everybody to see. He's up on the pallet rack, so yep. if any of the students are taking pictures and posting to social media, the guys will get to see the first look. But you, you just got to see him about an hour ago for the first time. What do you think? Well, you know, everybody thought it was crazy that after I shot that deer, I went and took a nap for two hours before I went and retrieved him, but... You know, probably just as crazy as he's been done at the taxidermist for a month, and I just haven't had time to go pick him up. And and I lucky had to, I got a I, good friend in you, and you and I had to me. go get him just so everybody could see him. Yeah, thank you. He would have ended up still sitting there until the Joey Buck was done. But uh, pretty cool mount. You got him uh, lip curled. Uh, if people saw the video, that's pretty much the that's, position he was when you shot him. Exactly. Yep. So we we have a little surprise for you tonight, though. Uh oh. <laughs> I'm afraid to hear one of this your guests one of your guests actually brought you a gift that you're going to open on on audio today. So he well, he's, awesome. he's on his he's on his way. He doesn't want to say anything. But <laughs> all I can say is if this is a love swing the podcast <laughs> is over. <laughs> There's no video of this unfortunately, but uh you're going to get to unwrap a gift and uh I can't wait to see your face. So <laughs> wow. probably set it on this. I'll watch the cords here. Okay. Set it right. Yeah, he, he did the sports pages since he knows how much you like professional sports. Awesome. Set it over on the table. I got your mic. Is the cord long enough? Yeah, I got you. Go ahead. So this might take a couple minutes and be really boring for the people listening, but I assure you the people live uh, watching this are going to have a good time. <laughs> All I'm saying is if it's a love swing, it's over, people. <laughs> it might be even better. It might be a tandem for you and Steve when he's filming you. 
Hold it up. That's just as bad as the love swing. Pick it up. What is it? It's expandable broadheads. Garbage. That's Rage. Not, Rage that's, expandable broadheads. That's not actually the real present. He just wanted to see your face when you opened it up. The real present's underneath. Oops. Easy. Ha. Awesome. Mel. Thank you. So this is a. Uh, appreciate is this it, Nathan. A fa- uh, is this a family member, Nathan? I'm sorry. Yeah. So. Uh, no, it's not Mel. It's Smokey. It's Smokey. It's Smokey. Yep. So, uh, um, someone Fantastic. who's very artistic uh, made and framed a um, hand. Is it charcoal or colored pencil or not? Just pencil of Smokey. Um, very cool. So, well, thank you very much. The the mechanical broadhead was just the just the well, fun part of it. After after the professional sports wrapping paper. Yeah, I'm just, not even just leave it. Just leave it at that. It's better <laughs> off that way. Yeah, for sure. So um, I got a couple things I want to pick your brain about before we start taking questions okay. tonight. Well, pick on me so, today. Yeah, uh, this is good stuff. So earlier this week, I got an email from a from somebody who had bought our switchgrass from Real World, and they said, "How do I burn it?" And we can't answer that question out of a text message or an email. And I said, well, you got to be really careful. It'll get away from you. I recommend you calling your fire department and asking their advice or even getting them to come out for a training exercise. He said, oh, I already did that. They told me I shouldn't burn it. It's too dangerous. (laughs) Why are you calling me? But it made me think, actually, on the tour of your farm last week, I overheard a customer here that wanted to buy switchgrass. And you told him not to because your comment to him was, if you cannot burn this product, you wouldn't plant it. And I want you to elaborate for everybody on the podcast tonight why burning is so important and uh, to plan ahead. And but it's a huge investment for people to use it as a management tool. But if they can't burn it, why? Well, burning switchgrass or any native grass is just like mowing your yard. So what would happen if you quit mowing your yard? At first, it would weeds would take over and then woody vegetation and eventually it would turn back into woods. And the same thing's gonna happen to your switchgrass. Uh, the burning actually does three things. First, it burns up weed seed, keeps a pure stand of, of switchgrass. Um, the other thing it does is it burns any tree saplings. If you do a regular burn every two to three years, those saplings are still small enough that the fire will kill them. And the third thing it does is it actually stimulates those grasses to grow. Uh, it's, it's very similar to mowing your yard. You know, you go out and mow your yard, and three days later, you can't tell you mowed it because it just makes it grow that much quicker. Right. And it's the same thing with these grasses. And the year you burn it, it will be the tallest and thickest. Um, and then it'll just slowly get a little bit weaker each year until you burn it again. So I know it's hard without uh, there being a visual, and maybe you can uh, produce a video in the future about it. But um, is there a way you can kind of give some tips on someone considering putting switchgrass in? how to lay out the spot, maybe put fire breaks in, go, go into a couple of details of things that you need to think about ahead of time before just saying, I'm going to do switchgrass. Well, I always put a fire break around the edge of it, uh, you know, about a 10 to 15 foot wide strip of clover uh, helps control that fire. You, you've, you've got to uh, watch the wind. You can't go out there and burn on a windy day. Um, I've learned the hard way. You was here a couple of years ago, Terry, when – you call the fire department before you start the fire. Um, yep. We had 
trucks showing up from every direction. I bet there was 20 trucks and three fire trucks here a couple years ago when we set the fire. Right. Um, so plan yeah. ahead. And you've gotten, you've had a couple get away from you a little bit because when you found Smokey's rack and named him that buck, you were actually on a skid loader trying to keep it from trying getting to put away a from fire you. out. Yep. <laughs> So when we're talking about a fire break, usually that's going to be a green product. So, you know, something like a clover or something like that, that's going to be, but, you know, grasses or anything or a Mm -hmm. plowed field. I know uh, one of the areas that we need to burn on here on your property, two of the perimeters of that is actually a plowed ag field, which is good. Right. But the other side has a really nice row of pine trees that you've planted over the years that all these guys are going to get to see tomorrow. You got to take that in consideration on the day you burn. For sure, you don't want the wind blowing towards those trees. And actually, tomorrow afternoon, after the class is over, we're going to do a burn. So anybody that wants to stay is welcome to, uh, provided the wind is right. Um, if the wind direction's wrong, I'm not going to take a chance on burning up 20-year-old pine trees. And the uh, there is a mature stand of miscanthus around the outside of that switchgrass. And you guys that are <laughs> going to stay and watch this show are going to enjoy that because... Um, you know, miscanthus is another product that we need to burn um, at about the same period we do the switchgrass, but it's a little bit different because of what it does with air up through the center of it. Yeah, you, you won't believe how tall those flames get. I mean, that miscanthus right now is about 12 feet tall, but I guarantee you them flames will be reaching 50 foot plus. Yeah, and sounding like a butane it, torch yeah, roaring. Yeah, it sounds like a tornado when it's burning too. So uh, for for some of the people that aren't familiar with Biscanthus, some of the commercial applications for that product is actually biofuel. Right. So the the heat that it puts off is amazing. It doesn't last very long. It burns fast. Right. But uh, it, it's kind of hollow like bamboo, and it wicks like a chimney, and it shoots a torch flame way, way up in there. Well, when it's standing, you know, there's plenty of oxygen around it. It's not like it's piled up and you're burning it. It's, right. it's standing, and there's... There's air all around it, and it goes up in flames in a hurry. So, um, real quick before we move on, back to the, back to the switchgrass and native grasses a little bit. The guys that just don't feel comfortable burning it is bush hogging it even an option. Well, I, I mean, it, it's far inferior to burning. Um, I guess it's better than nothing, right? But uh, you know, let's say you you mow the weeds and the saplings that start in there. The, the weed seed is still there. The sapling is still alive. That root system's still alive, and it's just going to sprout right back from that stump. So, right. I'm seriously, if I couldn't burn it, I wouldn't even plant it. Now, the the guys that are going to be walking the farm tomorrow, one of the pit stops you make on the tour of the farm is actually talking about some structure that you planted inside of it, and they're going to see some trees on a hillside mm-hmm. that you planted. And how do we protect that? Um, any trees that you might have in the middle of the switchgrass. Well, that's another one of them lessons I learned the hard way. You know, I've tried to create structure by planting some bigger oak trees. And typically oaks can handle fire fairly well, but uh, the oaks that I planted just weren't quite big enough. They were about two-inch diameter on the trunk. And uh, the first time I tried it, I'd killed every one of them. So now when I do it, I take my bush hog and, and mow that grass down, you know, at least 20 yards away from those trees. It still burns, but the flames just aren't near as high. Doesn't shoot the flame up up against that bark right. all the way up the trunk. Yep. So, but yeah, that's that's some great questions that we got uh, submitted this week. Um, that I know you were talking about that on the um, the tour of the master class, and then knowing that we might burn this weekend here if the wind's right tomorrow night. So, yep. 
you guys, uh, you guys that can stick around for this, it's it's pretty neat to watch and a good learning experience. But something you definitely have to be careful of: if you don't know what you're doing, you need to call your fire department before you do it. And most of the time, you might even need a permit, depending on the state or the township or something. And a lot of times, the fire local fire department will will do it for you. Those volunteer fire departments are always looking for an opportunity for a training session or something. So sometimes they'll do it for you. So. Um, I know you didn't travel this week to Iowa to go uh, kind of check out your new property and your um, your quest for an Iowa monster. What did you get into this week? I did a couple of consulting visits that weren't that far from home. I was able to drive and drive home, you know, in the same day. So uh, a couple of those local. I'm getting ready to head to uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin this coming week and uh, get get things wrapped up in the next two, three weeks. Well, I made it home after uh, after last week's class and got the insurance adjuster to look at my truck from the busted tail light and mm-hmm. the ding in the door and started that process. Did you um, turn in my mailbox? No, I didn't. <laughs> but Steve, the mailman who's listening right now, he he did he did send me a text and he said, "I know somebody had a bad day, but I didn't know it was you." Yeah. So, uh, um, but. Um, Actually, Chris Yates is here tonight, and he already went and looked at the truck and and, and kind of just shook his head at me. He, I, I offered to sign it, but yeah. he, I don't think that's going to fly on on the well, trade-in on my new Chevy. I think if that was a Chevy, it wouldn't even have dented it, would it? Was that Chris? right? <laughs> <laughs> the Chevy, it would have just bounced off. 30-foot gooseneck to a mailbox, it just goes flying. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. we gotta we got to keep it somewhat real on here. You just need somebody not to back over a mailbox, no matter what the type of truck is. Um, quick update on Lester's feet. I got some exciting news this week. Um, uh, we are very, very close to putting up the online raffle. I actually got contacted by a company today who listens to the podcast that's actually diversifying and coming out of agriculture and livestock auctions. And they have now a charity division and they've actually offered to do it at no charge for us. A lot, of, a lot of these companies, yeah. um, um, you know, take 5% off the top or something like mm-hmm. that. So um, I got good news tonight. If we end up today, if we end up using that company, a hundred percent of every dollar that's uh, put into this raffle to hunt our farms with us. And some of our sponsor donated products are going to go straight to families with uh, sick kids. Um, I had two meetings with the attorneys this week. You would not believe the level of bureaucracy our government has for people trying to set up a organization. It's it's going to end up being like a seven month process, but um, we we did confirm that everything is taken care of for their, our listeners on MTech. That's actually going to be easier than what we thought it was going to be. Good deal. Um, so they'll they'll be able to do it. So um, I would I would guess in the month of April we will go live with that website, and then you and I need to talk. Uh, sometime about when we're going to draw that name live um, um, on a podcast. And we got some other surprises that we're going to do for that. Um, but the load of lumber that I actually borrowed the gooseneck for, that got unloaded. Our friends at Cornerstone Equipment, shout out to those guys, they actually sent a skid loader over for free and didn't get it stuck in the mud as we were trying to get it unloaded. Um, just unbelievable pile of lumber that's going to be a huge blessing to a lot of people. So we're making progress. Um, I think we've already dispersed. We've already dispersed over nine thousand dollars to families already, and, and we're just getting started. And we haven't even started with this thing yet. Mm-hmm. So um, God's definitely opened up a lot of doors and met a lot of families that uh, 
we can help and the generosity of the hunting community. You know, it, it, it reminds me of, um, of we kind of get bogged down sometimes and people kind of make comments about how we kind of focus on the haters sometimes. Yeah, but we some, hear that. Sometimes, sometimes that's all we hear. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's been cool here lately is how many good people there are and that are supporting us. So it, it does mean a lot when we get those messages that there's, there is good people out there and not just the idiots. For sure. We appreciate hearing from the good people. So uh, don't hold back. Yeah. That encouragement goes a long ways. So um, outside of Control Burn, um, you got uh, a little project here with 360 blinds that we're going to probably undertake here pretty soon on your farm, aren't we? Yeah, it, um 360 came out with a new bigger blind um, here in the last year. The 7x7s, seven there's three of them on display right here and where we're at this evening. And uh, on my farm, I've got five 6x6 six six blinds, and those are all going to be replaced with the bigger 7x7. Seven seven. So I go to take a guest, my grandsons or whatever, give me a little more room and them a little more room. Yeah, one of the things that we've noticed in these is the 360, the circle, is very nice for, you know, seeing all directions, but there's no there's no corners in them. So the farther you get back away from the open window that you're hunting, the closer you get to the other person in the blind. Mm-hmm. And the foot diameter difference on these are a world of difference. So we're going to actually move the stand that the smoky blinds in. You have a little better view down that uh, that food plot, the trees. Uh, it was in perfect position when we placed it, but the pine trees and cedar trees around it have grown and kind of blocked our view a little bit. So we're going to move that a few feet and uh, put the bigger blind on that tower, and we'll be ready. So all of your blinds here are assembled, and um, we walked the uh, – I, I had my our friend Kyle Harmon from Team Radical. Um, he actually lives about 15 minutes from the the lease – I met with him today over there. He's bringing in some heavy equipment, and we're, he's gonna he's got one of those uh, mulching heads for the front of his skid loader. Mm-hmm. We're going to uh, prep to uh, put uh, two new blinds on that, or move one and put another one in and get some really good entrance and exit routes. So I spent the morning on the farm this morning with him, and he walked it, and he's going to get to that as soon as it gets dry. So we've been busy. It's it's not like it's off-season by any means. No. Nope, not yet. Um Still got another month of hitting it hard for sure, and then food plot season. Yeah, you know, one of my buddies that's here uh, from Kentucky, he actually plowed this week. Really? He, he worked ground this week, so uh, it was dry enough that he was able to get in the field a little bit. So it's not going to be long, and spring food plot season is going to be on on us. Well, they were plowing in Pennsylvania, too. I talked to one of our customers, real-world customers out there, and he said the, the farmers are plowing, so they must be a lot drier than they are here. Yep. Um, we did make a, a announcement that people need to understand about the real world stuff, and I'm not going to make this a real world plug, but we reallocated some test enlist bean product because of so many people calling us and we had sold out for the online allotment. So if you're hearing this and you want enlist beans, you need to get on there now and do it because there's not many left. But we, we did reallocate and put some more out there for the public. So if people want them, they need to get there. The they corn. will sell out, so don't drag your feet. If you want them, get them ordered. So the corn, the corn, the corn, we're not we're not able to do anything on, but uh, the NutriCrave corn. But if if you are listening to this and you want to do it, we announced it earlier this week. So if if you're dealing with water hemp and other Roundup uh, uh, tolerant 
plant weeds, then mm-hmm. uh, and you want to try these enlist beans, you need to get them on order real quick. So, yep. I, I'm with this many people in here. There's got to be a lot of good questions tonight. I just want to get to the questions unless you got uh, something else to talk about. Nope. I think the more time we got for questions, the better. And and I tried to get get everybody stirred up earlier and tell them to come up with a question to put you on the spot. So let's see if it well, happens. That's a lot different than asking me and see me in my underwear. So I appreciate <laughs> you putting that that out there. So. Um, yeah, get get. Let's get our line going of people up there, and it's not going to get too rowdy because your daughter's here and your and your two grandsons. So, well, if it gets too rowdy, they'll put people in their place. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they boys got my back. The, those boys can hold their own, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's let's go ahead and get somebody up there for the court first question, and then get somebody behind them on deck. Um, let's get going <laughs> here. We got people making their way already. The first one always takes a little bit. It's yeah, it's like. Number two needs to line up behind him. Yep. So you gotta tip that mic down just a little bit, and we're 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 under strict COVID protocols here, so you, you, you can't you can't touch the mic. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I've seen you live and in person, Terry, I don't want to see you in your underwear. Thank you. I don't want to see me in my underwear either. <laughs> um, my question is for Don. I've never heard him talk about this, and um, I'm from Indianapolis. Uh, Mark Jackson. I'm wondering about when you do your scouting, like in Iowa, how much attention you pay to um, scrapes, and if you do any of your stand placement built around that. Oh, great question. I, I really don't pay a whole lot of attention to scrapes. Um, you know, and over the years, I, I've realized that that sign, most sign is made at night, scrapes, rubs, whatever. And, you know, a mature buck he does two things he he moves with the terrain terrain features funnel where he moves and he moves with the wind so um i use terrain features more than anything to tell me where to put my stands and then i use wind direction to tell me when to be there to hunt um so to be to be honest i, I like to see big sign i like to see big rubs and scrapes that are you know really beat up but uh when it comes down to it, I, I don't use that as, as locations for my stands. Do you think that applies even more? Because a lot of, with people who have big woods, you know, because some of the sections that we go to and hunt, there's only an acre or two of woods, like where you mm-hmm. shot Joey at, right? So if you're on a scrape, there's not much woods there. The scrape's going to be close to where you're hunting. But I think a lot of people in big wood area, they they automatically go to where they're going to hunt because of a scrape being somewhere versus where they can get in and out and catch that deer in daylight. Well, a lot of times the bigger wooded areas are, are wooded because there's more terrain features. I mean, it's rougher. Right. If it was flat, it would be cleared and farmed. So uh, in, in those big wood areas, there's still – the deer activity is not evenly spread over that big wooded area. It's still concentrated, and, and terrain features is what concentrates it. So I'm still, even in, even in rougher terrain, bigger woods, still looking for terrain features. And those pinch points. For sure. All right. Good question. All right. State your name, where you're from, and your question for Don. Only Don. Questions <laughs> only for Don. Uh, my name's Ian. I'm from southern Indiana. Um, I got really two questions for you. Uh, where I hunt our farms at, we got three big ridges that run across our property. Um, you know, kind of different there we hunt here, or you would hunt here. Where would 
what would you do to really look at terrain features and how would you hunt those ridges? Would you hunt the ridge tops, you know, kind of hillsides? And then uh, my second question is, at this point in your hunting career, really what's your next, what do you want to accomplish next? It seems like you've accomplished every hunter's dream, you know, killing multiple 200-inch deer. You know, what, what's the next step you want to take? In? To get his co-host a net booner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Question number one. <laughs> um, in the terrain that you're talking about with the ridges and such, uh, you definitely want to stay up high on the ridges when you hunt. You get down in the bottoms and the wind just swirls way too bad, and it's it's just hard to play the wind down there. The bucks like to, to be up on the ridges or at least the, the top third or so uh, of a slope. So that's where I would focus at. Um, you know, one, one trick that I use in that type of terrain is you want to set up where your wind is blowing down a ravine. So you're up high, and, and a lot of times that ravine, the farther down it goes, the steeper the sides go, and, it, and up towards the top it kind of flattens out, and that creates a funnel. So you can set up at that, the top of that ravine um, where the deer are funneled by and have your scent blowing right down the ravine. Um, that that's probably the the quickest answer without seeing exactly the topography that you're talking about. Um, what's next for me? Hmm. <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, you know, the older I get, the more I really enjoy helping other people. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, uh, he's going to commit to it. I didn't say Terry. He, I said other he, people. <laughs> he said he was ninety eight percent sure he was going to shoot Smokey. Now he's going to make his commitment on my net booner. I'm just kidding. Well, we're not there yet, but <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> no, I just get a thrill. Um, you know, I, I've, I've got so many consulting clients and such and, and done a lot of these classes over the past few years that uh, it's a thrill for me in the fall when, when I start, my phone just starts buzzing with texts from guys that are sending me pictures of bucks they just shot. And they said, I just shot the biggest buck of my life and, it's out of the tree that you tied the ribbon to when you was at my property or it's because of something you said in your master class. And I, I don't know, the older I get, just helping other people is really, you know, is in my heart. Um, that doesn't mean I don't want to shoot big ones myself too. I mean, there's always another one to chase. I, I've made it uh, very clear that I'd like to shoot a giant on public land. And I've got uh, a couple of tips on possible bucks to chase this year on public um, I, I think just, uh, I mean, every, every buck's a challenge. It, it just, it never ends. It's not like there, there's, you reach a pinnacle and then you get bored. Um, I shoot one buck and then the challenge is there to find another one and do it again. And, uh, but really the older I get, it's just helping other people more than anything. So. Good questions. I liked my answer better. <laughs> Step up a little bit close to so make sure we can hear you. All right. Hello, my name is Jared, and I'm from Illinois. Uh, it kind of relates to both of you because I've heard it in a past podcast. Uh, you, Terry, you said you used to hunt on near the Wabash River and you used to kind of use that as a fence. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I never hear you guys talk about is, like, thermals as pertains to in the morning or the evening with what the temperature is doing or thermals over, like, water if, like, say you're hunting on that river edge or creek whatever it's a pretty good sized river and your wind's blowing towards the river 
And if your scent hits that and sucked into the water or raising up, I've never done some research on some other people and they talk a little bit about thermals and I just never hear you guys talk about it and wonder your thoughts on it or do you never worry about it because of where you place your stands, you know that that's not really an issue for you. You want to take it or you want me? Go ahead. I'll answer it. Um, you know, playing the wind is a never-ending lesson. Um, you, you never master the wind. Uh, you, you can, it's a continual learning uh, process. And, you know, every time you put a new stand in a new tree you've never hunted from before, you're learning what the wind does there. And if you guys look tomorrow towards my house, you're going to see a, a uh, TV tower, and up on top of that TV tower is a big orange windsock. And uh, it's up there above all the trees. And, you know, a lot of times when I do a seminar, if I'm talking about the wind, I'll ask the crowd, if, if hunting season opened tomorrow, how many of you know exactly where you would be sitting? You, you got that special stand, and you know where you'd be tomorrow morning if, when season opened tomorrow. And hands will go up, and I'll say, these are the people that aren't going to kill a mature buck because they already know where they're going to hunt, and they don't even know what the wind direction is going to be tomorrow. When, you know, and uh, if I'm going to hunt this afternoon, I, I'm watching the wind all day long. If I see somebody burning something, I'm watching that smoke. If I drive by a flag, I'm watching that flag. But I don't know where I'm going to, and I'll be thinking in my head, okay, the wind's southwest. Here's my options for a southwest wind. And I'm thinking of where I'm probably going to hunt that evening, but I don't know for sure until I look up and, and see that, that wind sock. But you know, there'll be some stands I'll put up, and I'll think, you know, I need a south wind to hunt this stand. And I'll look at my windsock, the wind's out of the south, and I get to that stand. You know, I may, might have to drive to that, that area, and I get out of my truck. I check the wind there again. Yep, the wind's still out of the south, but yet I get to that tree, and, and the wind's doing something different there than what I thought it would be. Um, uh, one thing that happens in this open country is that wind will come across these open fields, and then it hits a tree, and when it does, or a tree line, the edge of a woods, and when it does, it, it swirls. It hits that tree, and it goes down, and it goes just the opposite direction that you think it was, and then it goes back over the top. And, you know, there'll be deer below you, and you think that you're downwind to them, but they're actually catching your scent because of the way it swirls. So playing the wind is a, is a never-ending thing, and every time you put a new stand in a new tree, you've got to learn what the wind's doing there. And, and I've kind of avoided your topic on thermals, but thermals ties right into it. Uh, thermals react different in different terrain. Uh, you get the more hilly terrain, it's going to react different than it does in flatland. So that's just part of, thermals is part of learning to play the wind at each specific location where you have a stand. So specifically to the spot you asked me about, that is a 720-acre bottom. So that wouldn't be the same as something downriver that's a woods and a hill right next to the river. So, I mean, it's like my buddy Todd Covey's here. When he bought a new piece of property, the first thing I told him was go buy poles and wind socks and put, because he's got this huge big ridge down the center with two bottoms on each side. We have no idea what that wind is going to do at different directions and where it's going to swirl, what the wind sock on the top says versus the bottoms. You have to go around to those stands and understand each one individually. There's... There's nothing, if, if somebody tries to tell you that, there's, there's, it's just, they're trying to sell you something probably. Thank you. Thank you.
Kind of like the guy that says, find the scrape and go 30 yards to the north. We had that happen, didn't we? Yeah. Now up to the mic, steps to the legend. Alan Foster, he's 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 batted two for two with with great questions so far. I, he's had all week to think. I guarantee you, he's he's got a great twenty one master classes. Um, I don't take questions directly from Alan. They're saved specially, especially. You don't for know you. that. He, Al might have I, one I, for I you. do know that because I know the question that he's going to ask you. Because <laughs> we planned you it. Guys we planned been, it all week. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I have no idea what he's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead, Alan. It better not be for me, by the way. No, it's for Don. Good. Don, you've been consulting for 40-some years. Or how long have you been consulting for, I should ask? Uh, it's probably a 10 or 12 years now. Okay. What frustrates you the most on your consulting trips, and what do you like the most about your consulting trips? Oh, that's a great question, and <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even tee this one up and tell Al what to ask. <laughs> Without a doubt, you know, the best part of my consulting job is the people I get to meet. I mean, I make so many friends. There's guys here that I've been to their property, some of them just this winter for the first time I met them this winter, and they become friends. And uh, that's there's no doubt the people is the best thing that deer hunting ever did for me, is the people I got to meet through deer hunting, and especially through the consulting. You know, you spend a day with a, a guy on his farm and, you have some emails back and forth, maybe a phone call or two back and forth, and those people become friends, and you share in their success, and maybe talk to them a few times each year as they're building their properties up. And it, it without a doubt, people is the best thing about uh, about it. Uh, the most frustrating part is people. that is people as well, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> um, you know I know what I started with on my property. And and I didn't start with much. This property was nothing when I started. And and sometimes I will go to a property and I'll see a world of potential. Um, I, I know this guy can make his property better than, than I've made mine. And, and yet I, I just can't seem to get through to him. And a lot of times it's because they've listened to too much garbage on the Internet. Garbage. Garbage for sure. I mean, they, they just... Uh, there's too many people out there that are trying to complicate the whole process of of killing and growing big deer on a farm and, and getting those deer killed. And uh, I've taken just the opposite approach. I try to simplify it. I, I It really is simple. Um, there's just some basics that you got to keep in mind. And if you follow those basics, um, you, you can kill big deer too. And each one gets a little bit easier than the one before, but... You know, a lot of times I'll go to a property and I'll know within about 30 minutes of meeting the, the new client if, if they're going to get it or if I'm wasting my time. Um, it's just it's just a mindset. You know, they've, they've made it so complicated and they just cannot accept that it's this simple. And, and yet it really is. Um, so I, I guess the most frustrating thing for me is is those people that won't listen when I know some of them have way more potential on their farm than what I've got here. And, you know, I've been able to, to kill a lot of booners, two 200s on this place, and I, I know there's guys that could do the same thing, and, and they just uh, are making it too complicated. Well, I think it goes back to you look at any there, – there's always a guy that we're friends with inside our social network that we think, uh, I need to take my game up to their level. No matter what the level is, it's a it's a one twenty five to a guy that kills one forties or one fifties or you know, on up. 
But when you get to the guys that are consistently killing mature bucks, I guarantee you every single one of them will say, it took me longer to get to the point, and once it clicked, it's not mm. that difficult. But the guys that are still out there chasing a gimmick that you can buy on a shelf that's going to allow you to blow or bang something together and consistently kill mature bucks, those yeah. are the ones that are missing it. It's like they want the shortcut. And, and you'll be the first to admit, this place took you 30 years, and you're still not done with it. There's still other mm. projects that we're going to be working on this year. Yeah. It's not something you change overnight. And I made a lot of mistakes on this farm, and I can save my clients those mistakes if they'll just listen. But the the frustrating part really is not the people that I'm the clients; it's the people putting out the bad information on the internet um, that that's got these people confused. And you know they think they've got to do all these different things on their property to, and you know it's like every one of my clients has been very successful at something in life. Um, yeah, I, I've had professional athletes, business owners, whatever, and, and the harder they worked, at whatever it was, the more successful they come. Well, with deer hunting, there there's a fine line. So you, you take your property, it starts at a certain level, and you start improving it, and it gets a little bit better. But there's a fine line, and when you cross that fine line, it drops off, and you end up with a property that's worse than where you started. Because you've done too much. Exactly. You've, you've done too much. You've, you've crossed the line, and there's so much human intrusion on your property. Um, and the frustration for me is the people that are promoting a lot of this garbage on the Internet. And, and everybody's buying into it. We need our garbage sound effect. We're going to have to come up with one. Yeah, there's we're no going to have to get one. So it, it never fails. I don't know how many of these master classes that Don has, and I come up to help him. Every single student walks away with their jaw down saying, it can't be that easy. It's, it's like the deal with Chris Yates sitting here looking at me right now. That It can't be that good of a deal on a truck. There's got to be something. My wife's an accountant. She's telling me it can't be right. It, it's, that, it's that good of a deal, and it's that simple. You guys are going to walk through this property tomorrow and just say, yeah, my property doesn't lay out like this place does, and I'll never be able to make it look like that's That might be true. This is a special place. But there'll be something that you take away tomorrow, not only at this or driving past places that we're going to stop on the road and show you where you shot Trump, that you're like, there's no way he killed that deer right there. And it's it's really that simple. Well, everybody should be able to take away a little bit. No matter what your property looks like, no matter how much different it is than mine, there should be some general ideas that you could take to any property that you're hunting and and make it work and apply them there and improve your success. Now that Don has a package of mechanical broadheads, he can <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, next question. <laughs> you said you never owned a, a a package of mechanical broadheads. That so might be a, that might be a door prize for the door prize for the <laughs> raffle. <laughs> okay. Hello, uh, I'm Damon Marling from Southern Indiana from Paris Crossing. Um, I got a couple comments before I get to a question. I, I just appreciate you guys' faith. Uh, I love it. And, you know, Paul asked that he would be bold in his faith and speaking out. And, you know, he asked for prayer for that. And I appreciate you all's faith and your boldness. So that's my first comment. Can you you pause just for a second before your second one? Is that okay? Yeah. I haven't told Don this yet, but I I got two phone calls this week. Um, One of them was from Frank Archie. You know, we partner with Lone Wolf. And he actually said that a guy called Lone Wolf this week 
and the podcast came up and they spent 10 minutes just talking about each other's faith on the phone from talking about the podcast. And the second one is, um, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday night this week, I got a call from Harold Monk, the owner of Wise Eye Cameras. And somebody called and they asked where they had heard about the camera and they said, oh, the podcast. And this guy said something about his faith and that he was really struggling with it. And the Monk family is very devout Christians also. And Harold's brother, Daryl, actually spent, I don't know what they said, 20, 30, 40 minutes talking to this guy, sharing the word with him on the phone. And it wasn't us. It's just it starts that conversation. So um, I know you're you're a minister also, and we've been to your church for for uh, um, uh, for when Don was speaking. So um, it's just like we're dealing with charities. Everybody does a little bit. You do a lot of good. So I didn't, now you can ask your other question, but I hadn't told I hadn't told Don about those two things that had come up. That's just random feedback that we hear indirectly about the podcast. It's pretty I have, cool. I have one more comment before my question. Um, something that you all mentioned different times, and my dad's even said it this way when he was alive. Um, I heard a jury brother say it, but talk about Mother Nature, and you know how stuff irks you. That irks me. I'm like, man, Mother Nature never done nothing. God is a creator, designer, and if there's these animals are doing anything, God's designed them that way. So just a, something in my crawl, you know. But my question, um, here it is. I, I know that you say intrusion is the number one enemy of a hunter. Intrusion, is, you keep, continue to go in there, and I believe you. But then I've got a question in my head that I watch people hunt, you know, in these big cities and things, and people are all around these deer, and there's big bucks in there. So I think, how are they tolerating these people and those big bucks are in there? And then I think, maybe these big bucks need just a little bit of intrusion here or there to go so they get used to you, and then... I don't, I don't know. That, that's my question. You know, what, why is these big bucks around people in the big cities? But if we intrude on our farms, it's bad. Great question. Well, it comes down to, to what uh, a buck's used to in his area. Uh, if they grow up, you know, from the time they're a fawn uh, up to maturity, and there's always people around in these urban settings, well, they get used to that. But I still believe those bucks are trying to find the most secure place within that cover to bed. Um, the the uh, intrusion thing really comes down to the bedding area. Um, you you, you got to stay out um, and, and let those deer have that uh, security. And I, I think it's the same way with uh, the urban deer, but their safe zone, their sanctuary, their bedding area, whatever you want to call it, is, is probably a whole lot smaller um, than what these rural deer require. So, you know, out here in the country, uh, a buck, he may bed in a little five-acre or three-acre pocket of brush in the middle of nowhere, and uh, we think that's a, that's a small spot. But you get into uh, an urban area, well, that, that buck's core, not really core, but uh, sanctuary may just be, uh, you know, a 50-yard square thicket behind somebody's garden or something. Um, so I think it's all relative to what those deer grew up and were used to as they grew up, and they just found those those uh, pockets, you will, where the intrusion was the least. 
if there was an option for those urban bucks to go that was safer than where they're at, they would go there. If you're if you're out here on your farm and there's an option on the next farm over that doesn't have intrusion, where's he going to go? Does that make sense? So, I mean, if it's in the middle of, you hear about these, we had a monster buck that was poached. It was like everybody knew about it in northern Kentucky right along the river. I mean, he was a giant, and he ended up getting killed this last year, and, and they ended up arresting the guy that did it. But he lived in a neighborhood where the houses are like 10 yards apart. I mean, he was a giant. How big was he, Todd? Was he over two? Yeah, it was. he was pushing like 210. But, I mean, everybody would drive through the neighborhood all the time to try to see him. But if there would have been a woods there that was a sanctuary, he wouldn't have been in those houses. So think of your farm like that checkerboard again. If you're putting intrusion on your square and there's a safer place for him, he's not going to be there. He's going to be in the safer square. Good question. You're next. My name's uh, Jim Moore. I'm from Warrington, Missouri. And the question I have is probably, maybe both of you can answer, is concerning uh, timber management, hinge cutting in particular. Uh, I think Don's got fired up already on that a little bit. And I would like to know the good, the bad, the ugly. What do you think? Would you do it? I mean, can I, I really don't see the point of cutting a bad tree, letting it, produce uh, more browse for the deer. And I know you wrote an article one time that you like to cut trees completely out, plant oak trees or something like that back, uh, which would be better than hinge cutting. Can you give me your opinions? It would, oh, be, I awesome. Got it would be awesome <laughs> if you would have made a Facebook post about that recently yeah. that you could have gotten yeah. into the argument with all of the... I could have maybe got somebody fired up if I had brought up that. Um <laughs> I'm not a fan of hinge cutting because I think that we can be better stewards of the natural resources that are under our care. Uh, we can make great deer cover, you know, without hinge cutting. When you hinge cut a tree, basically that tree's still alive. That root system is still alive. It's still competing with all the trees around it. Uh, the top of that tree is still alive. It's still shading the ground, preventing new vegetation from growing. I'd just as soon cut that tree off, let it fall, let that be the ground cover is that dead tree but through that dead tree top um you know new tree seedlings can grow up and woody vegetation briars browse for the deer um i think whoever came up and started promoting hinge cutting is just uh, doing a disservice to deer hunters and um you know we need to look beyond the immediate uh, uh, there's no doubt that hinge cutting immediately makes great deer cover but, uh, you know, I got two grandsons up here that are someday going to own this farm, and I need to be leaving this farm in the best shape possible for them because their interest may not be in deer. They may be, you know, interested in timber management or something. So I can manage this farm for deer and still be managing it for the next generation to leave it better than I found it. And, and that that's my big opposition to, to hinge cutting is, you hinge, and I've got an area on this farm that I hinge cut. We're not going to see it because it's in the sanctuary tomorrow. But my opinions come from firsthand experience. I didn't read some guy's garbage on the internet and then just start following it. Garbage. It's from firsthand experiences where I come up with my opinions. And uh, I just think there's a better way than hinge cutting. Um, and that's not to say, you know, if I went into the right timber 
and, and wanted to enhance it because there was some species that were of, of little or no value and such, you know, there might be some trees that I'd hinge cut, but it wouldn't be a widespread hinge cut. At least 90% of the trees I'd cut off. So, If you reference that picture that you posted this week from your consulting visit, yep. that was just a disaster. It looked like a tornado went through. Yeah, there was, was no there was no plan to it. It was just a bunch of crisscross. It was a rabbit thicket is all, is all it ended up being. Well, that wasn't the first time that I've seen that, though. Right. I've been on a lot of properties and seen the very same disaster. And that was my whole point. You know, the, these Internet guys are promoting hinge cutting, and the people that are going out and doing it, they're running good timber. I can't tell you how many nice oaks and walnuts and stuff that I've seen that were cut off at chest high and laid over. They just ruined. There's no timber value there in the future. But um, I think it's I think it's another example of somebody taking a snippet of what somebody says on the Internet and saying, I'm going and doing that because that's a quick fix. And it's it's overdoing a plan or an idea on your property and making it worse. We can be better stewards than that. So. I was really hoping yeah. you would get off a little bit more on that. On a tangent? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to calm down just a little bit, Terry, as I get older. To. Come on. <laughs> you can't. Well, you can't. With the right question comes up, can, I'll get fired Don, up. Don says he cannot hang from a tree saddle on a tree that's been hinge cut because it's already laying down. <laughs> Don doesn't hang from tree saddles, period. <laughs> Calvin from Illinois. Um just wondering, are you guys – We've talked about the mechanical broadheads and stuff like that. Another thing that you guys haven't really mentioned on your podcast is uh, deer decoys. Why don't you use them? Well, actually, I have used deer decoys in the past. And, uh, you know, uh, the reason I'm anti-gadget is because I've tried them all. I, I've been through every – I don't care what stage you are as a hunter today. I've been there. I've used them all. I shot little bucks. Um, I shot every size of box to get to where I'm at today, and I used every gadget along the way. And, and I can tell you from firsthand experience, for every mature buck you bring in with a decoy, you're going to spook 25. And I'm just playing the odds, and besides, I don't like carrying that big bulky thing through the woods anyway. <laughs> I've never used them. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I haven't. You're not missing anything, Terry. I st I sit in the tree with my hands up on my forehead like that. Does that count? Yeah, it counts. Okay. Yeah, sure, in, in his tree saddle. In his underwear. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. But. The man with the Make American Great Again hat, when he walked up the uh, the driveway, we said, that's our kind of guy. Actually, well, I don't forget yeah. what you said, something like that. For sure. My name's Eric. I'm from Northern Illinois. Um, this last season was my first season hunting, and um, I consider myself lucky to have filled both my tags because I got such bad penetration using a mechanical broadhead and a light setup. Um, a buddy of mine shot three deer that we didn't recover, and so I'm wondering if you can um, talk about your setup. I know a while ago you talked about uh, shooting heavy arrows. If you can kind of talk about what that means. Um, and if maybe you can give some pointers as to how we can improve penetration and air lethality apart from uh, using fixed broadheads. Well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm old school. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to have a good mentor when uh, I was in my late teens. Alan Foster is here tonight. Um, I, I remember 
I bought a new bow, and I came into work just proud of myself. Um, got this new bow as a cam bow. Cam bows just came out. And uh, first year that cams even existed. Before that, they were all round wheel bows. And I bought this cam bow and so proud of myself. And I come up and tell Al about my new bow. And, and uh, remember that, Al? <laughs> he, he gave me plenty to think about. Let's put it that way. It's like uh, the, the technology, you know, at, at what point does it end? And, uh, you know, I remember when a light broadhead was 150 grains, a light one. Most broadheads were in the 200 to 225 grain. Today, you can't even hardly find a broadhead that's over 125. And, uh, you know, that the heavier arrow just it flies better. It's more forgiving. It's deeper penetrating. I remember Gene Winslow one time used the example. He said, take a, a, a golf ball, go out into a snowdrift, Take a golf ball and just hold it straight out and let it loose and drop it into the snowbank and see how far it penetrates. And then take a ping pong ball and slam it into that snowbank as hard as you can and see which one penetrates the farthest. That slow golf ball that you just dropped, the kinetic energy penetrates farther than that ping pong ball. I have never once shot an arrow through a chronograph. I don't know how fast my bow shoots and I don't care. Um, I've never once shot a mechanical broadhead, and people say, well, then why, how can you bash him? Well, I can, I can say I've never shot a deer with a field point either, and I'm not going to start today. Um, I've got more sense than that, um, <laughs> more respect for the game than that. And, and, and really, I don't even see what's funny about it because I, I, I literally have more respect for the game than that. I want to kill that animal as quickly and humanely as I possibly can. Um, as far as my arrow weight, I don't know. I use uh, Easton full metal jacketed arrows. Uh, they're pretty heavy arrows. Um, I, I keep my shots short. Um, never over 30, and most of my shots are under 20, to be honest. Uh, the two deer I shot this year were at 7 and 12 yards. Um, I, you know, bow hunting wasn't meant to be easy. I think uh, we heard somebody say that a couple weeks ago, too, didn't we, Terry? Mm-hmm. Um and, and I think that uh, it's the gadgetry that, that really turns me off uh, today, you know, as, as far as the modern bow hunter, if you will. Um, and, and I've never been a gadget freak anyway. I've been more about the whitetail and the deer, the hunting part, you know, meant more to me than the bow part. Um, I, I just keep it simple, um, keep my shots close. I shoot a single pin sight, sight it in for 20 yards. If it's 25, I hold it a few inches high. If it's closer, I hold it a few inches low. Um, I, I think, you know, bow hunters by and large have tried to make this, this sport um, easier through their equipment, and they have to some degree. But I've always focused on my hunting skills. It's, it's like, you know – if you're hunting, if you sharpen your hunting skills, you don't need all that other stuff. Um, if you if you can't get that that deer within bow range, uh, I mean, it really doesn't matter what you're holding in your hand. You can sit in that tree for months on end, and if you can't get the deer that you want to kill in bow range, it really doesn't matter. And I, I've always focused on sharpening my hunting skills more than than uh, my archery skills, and. It, I can guarantee you we're probably looking at about 40 people in this room, and if we all went out and shot our bows, I bet I'm in the worst five. I bet 35 of you probably are a better archery shot than I am, and I'm not joking either. That's that's the absolute honest truth. 
But I'll tell you what, when I get a big buck in 20 yards, he's in trouble. And uh, that that's just been my approach. So I don't know if that answers your question, but – and I even did that without getting on too much of a tirade. My name is Terry, and I'm a recovering <laughs> mechanical broadheadaholic. Um, everybody thinks that I changed because of Don. Don never once put pressure on me to to make my decision. Um uh, Ron Slifer was who got me to change. And uh, when I started seeing and following him, and then there was a series of pictures that he posted from the deer processors where they would actually process the game and find sections of arrows still lodged inside of animals. And it got to the point that he said that he would not even come track your deer with certain design broadheads depending on the shot that that told that told me something if he won't even invest his time to bring his dog it's a lot it's not a it's not a high probability that he's recovering that and and that's what finally put me over the edge to to make me switch um, there's going to be a aerospace engineer expert that's going to hear this and and say that I said this all wrong but for those people who are wanting to stay in the lightweight set up I challenge you to go look at um, uh, missile ballistics and look at like bunker buster type missiles and all of the missile technology I work in manufacturing so we sell machines that make all of that technology you know from the nose piece to the and every single one of them is heavy weighted on the front with a stiff back end the heavy front helps lead wherever it's going so the back doesn't try to pass the front because you have all this kinetic energy from the back end of the bow or from a you know, a, a mo uh, engine pushing it, so you don't want the back. That's why you have the fins there. You want them trailing a heavy piece, not not uh, trying to pass it. And then you need that to hit and not absorb the kinetic energy from from the actual impact. You want that to continue on into whatever it's hitting. So it's it really holds the same theory from a manufacturing standpoint as your archery setup. I want to expand on that a little bit in regards to ethics. I don't believe it's my place to tell anybody else what equipment they should be using. You've never told me that. Nope. not And, and I haven't told anyone else. And, in fact, um, most of the bucks that were shot on my place this past season were shot with mechanical broadheads. And I never said a word to anyone that was using them. But I think with the platform that, that I've been blessed with here in recent years, I, I do think that I've got a responsibility to challenge people to think about ethics you know don't follow my example but just think about it you know um, think about it from a you know the animal standpoint does, does that animal deserve to have an arrow launched at it from 80 yards away and you know maybe hit it in the rear or wherever um, just, just uh, think about not only the equipment you use but the, the shots you take and your priorities in life I mean killing big deer is great but uh, and, and for a lot of years, I had my priorities a little bit out of whack, and I had it too high. I had killing big deer too high on the priority list. And in recent years, it, I've got things more in order. And you know, I just again, it's not my place to tell people what to shoot as far as equipment. It's not my place to tell people to shoot as far as what deer to shoot and what deer they should be passing. But I just challenge you to to always be trying to get better. It's like our faith. We're not going to tell somebody how to live their life. Exactly. And I sure hope they don't 
take after me because I'm far <laughs> from perfect. Uh, me too. Um, Believe me. But but it's something to think about that everybody has to evaluate on their own. Right. Quick follow up, if I can, Terry. So what you were talking about. I guess that's kind of where I was going because I'm asking the question not to bring up mechanical broadheads, uh, but to improve myself as an ethical hunter. This is my first season I just, I just finished with, and I'm, I'm two for two, terrible penetration. I helped try to recover three deer that we didn't even find. Um, are you paying attention to just overall weight at all, or are you putting a lot of weight up front where you're having the, the broadhead kind of pull the... The, the problem um, is, and we're not dodging the bullet, you're probably the, talking to the least techie guys as far as what different specs and models of new stuff that's out. That's where that's where the Amazon mentality of purchasing archery equipment, I think, really hurts the industry. Having an awesome bow shop like Broken Rack Archery, our buddy Dustin at Broken Rack Archery in the east side of Cincinnati, having a guy like that that you can go in and say, you know, if if you ask me what a stiff arrow is today versus what it was eight years, I don't know. I mean, sure. I shoot in East and ACCs, which is a aluminum carbon composite, you know, both. They're really, really stiff with a 125-grain broadhead on it. Um, to answer your question, I have no idea how fast it shoots. No idea. So, I mean, um, having a bow shop instead of just going online and buying something that you really don't know or that's the Amazon Prime deal of the day, I would think that your best bet is to work with your local archery shop and say, hey, I think I want a heavier setup to get more penetration. Give me a demo error, arrow and walk out there and shoot it into their foam bag and mark your arrow and say, okay, I got eight inches of penetration versus two inches of penetration for a light setup and then, and then test it specific to your bow. You can't do that buying online, so I would recommend you doing that. But I, I can't tell you a specific model. There's there's people in here that know a whole lot more about it than I do. Thanks. Uh, I want to commend you as a new bow hunter for, for seeing, you know, the opportunity to, to get better. Um, too many people would keep making the same mistake over and over again, and I, I think it's fantastic that you recognize that there's got to be a better way and you're trying to find it. And I wish we had better answers for you, but uh, – and I apologize for that, but I do want to commend you for the direction you're taking. You got a shot at two deer your first year. That's probably better than anybody else in the room. I shot my first one in the butthole, so. <laughs> I got good penetration, though. That thing went all the way up to his brisket. <laughs> Texas heart shot. He went about 25 yards. Hey, guys. Josh from West Virginia. Um, I really enjoyed the podcast with Dr. Strickland. Um, you know, we talk a lot about how we, the tactics around harvesting an animal, um, how we hunt mature bucks, but I like really digging into the science as well about the animals that we hunt, right? The turkeys, because I'm a turkey hunter as well, but the garbage. Um, Just kidding. Thanks, Terry. Um, <laughs> my, my question is, we talk about mature bucks, four and a half, five and a half, six and a half, older, right? So when you really dial into a mature doe, so the, the conversation around the fetal programming, um, you know, as you're feeding that doe mineral, you know, she's growing herself as an immature doe on that side of the pendulum, as well as the nine and a half, 10 and a half year old doe, um, how much of that mineral, how much of that nutrition, um, can you just, it's really not a question more of like, I just, I'm inter interested in your comments around that. So when we're out here buying mineral, when we're doing things on our farms and on our properties to try to improve that, um, as we're having younger does that are actually 
you know, having fawns, there's obviously that sweet spot in the middle where they're mature deer. Um, but as they're young, how much are they really giving themselves versus the fetus? How much when they're older are they using that to stay alive versus the fetus? I'm just curious of your comments around that. Well, I'm not sure that I, I can answer your question. Um, I, I can when you we start talking about minerals for deer. I have no doubt that uh, the vast majority of mineral products marketed to deer hunters are doing absolutely no good um, just by their makeup. Um, you, you can really tell a good mineral. The easy way to tell a good mineral product for deer or a quick way, first right out of the gate, you need to look at the calcium and phosphorus levels. And they need to be in a two-to-one ratio. So there should be twice as much calcium as there is phosphorus in that mineral. Zinc and copper needs to be in a four-to-one ratio. But most, most minerals you're going to look at for deer don't even have both zinc and copper. They might have one or the other, and they may have both. But th there's a lot of different micronutrients that need to be in certain ratios to each other. Um, I, I kind of got off of your, your topic just a little bit, but... I wanted to point out that most minerals marketed to deer hunters are, are worthless, and they're not going to help at all. As far as, uh, you know, the, the fetal programming in regards to those of different ages, um, without a doubt, you know, th those young d uh, does, uh, a lot more of their nutritional intake is going to be going towards their, their own body. It's, it's still growing. Uh, we're on an older doe, it's just going to the maintenance. It's no different than cattle farmers. You know, them first calf heifers, um, you know, they need to be fed a little bit better than a mature cow. It's the same way with deer. So, um, yeah, you, you watch the dairy farmers always separate, or the feedlot, the cattle feedlot guys, they're always separating their first-year heifers with a complete different food ration mm -hmm. than they are their cows that are on their second or third calf. Right. So, so to take that a little bit further, with your experience in the captive industry, where is, say I have a breeder doe, and we've talked about the super does before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I watch DeerAge.com pretty close on, because they post a lot of cool stuff about, you know, age structure of their customers mm -hmm. that send it in. I think that people are sending in a lot more does samples now. And, you know, there's been some eight, nine, I think there was even recently a 14 or 15-year-old doe that they aged. On the top end, when somebody's captively breeding a doe, when do they stop breeding it? When's that peak season to where they say, okay, I'm not, I'm not uh, breeding that doe anymore? Well, the good ones, they breed as long as they'll breed. Okay, so that doesn't fall off then? No. Okay. It, the, those genes are the same, you know, from the time that animal's born until it dies. Its genes okay. don't change. Um, so, you know, the, the production might change. She may have... Fewer fawns, she may she gets older have singles instead of twins. Instead of twins, yeah. But but uh, I think that's kind of more what Josh was getting at, wasn't it? So on the top side, does it fall off? But it might with fawn production, but not with genetics. The genetics will be there. Um, I don't know. That's a that's more of a question for Doctor Strickland than uh, than we'll me. To, we'll have to the, save that one for next yeah, time. He's for on sure. There. Good question. All right, we got another one. I think uh, last week, Terry, you said I think two hundred and fifty. Quarter million downloads, I think, is what this podcast yeah, is. It's here. over that now. So I think it's only fitting that last week you guys had a seventh grader, I believe, here. And with Don's grandsons here, you know, you got such a large platform. And outside of hunting, outside of the hunting industry and the hunting community, to these younger kids listening and this younger generation from both of you, 
what's one bit of advice that you would give to them, you know, um, for their future outside of hunting, outside of the hunting industry, you guys are role models. Some were Michael Jordan for, for you, Don, it was Alan Foster. What's, uh, you know, what, what's something you'd give them to take for the rest of their lives? Well, for me, it's easy. Um, you know, I tell I tell a lot of young people um, on a weekly basis, dream big. God's reality is bigger than anything you can imagine. And, uh, you know, if I, what, what I'm doing today, I, I could have never even dreamed that I'd be doing this 10 years ago, let alone when I was a kid. Um, to think that people would travel from other states to come to my home farm to listen to me talk is just, it's, mind-blowing to me and it still is today i'm just a simple country boy i say it all the time and uh you know dream big because you, god's reality is so much bigger than anything you can even imagine and it doesn't matter if you're dreaming about hunting or a career or whatever dream big i talk about it pretty openly that i coach high school fast pitch softball and um i don't talk about how much i hate softball to be honest with you, um, I, I like the kids. And uh, this week we had a, I got a I got a text message from one of the sophomores that, quite honestly, you look at the history of her life. She's been through some stuff that no kid should ever be. Her dad fought cancer, passed away as she was younger. Uh, was lucky that her mom found a very good man that is a, a great father figure to her. But you you start thinking about a kid at that age, you know, going through that kind of stuff. And uh, she fell in love with basketball this summer, and she called me, and she's like, I really want to play basketball year-round. She was just, I mean, crying like crazy. And I just left Todd Covey's house, dropping off the trailer with, with his blind that he had bought, and she called me, and she was she was upset, and she thought she was letting her down. And I had to be somewhere, and I drove to her house, and we sat on the tailgate of her, of her truck, and she goes, I can't believe that you drove all the way over here. And my only comment to her is I said, how does this make you feel with me coming over here and just talking? And she's like, I would have never dreamed it. I was like, remember that and make that to somebody else. So whatever we're doing, it's not about, it should never be about me. We talk about the best way to be blessed is be a blessing to someone else. I have no doubt that my professional career is as successful as what it is because I had the people surrounded around me that pushed me. And I tried to pull people with me. And I, I've always tried to be, it's never about me. And good things happen. Bad things happen too. But when you're surrounded by people like that, um, I just think it's different. So what, when the biggest message I tell kids with coaching is, remember how it feels when somebody does something for you. And go do that for somebody else at some other point in time. You can, you can get a lot of people to make a difference somewhere else. Don't hang from tree saddles. It's dangerous. That's what I tell them. <laughs> I'm Fred Zink from Northern Ohio. Uh, my question is, um, I grew up with my family, my kids hunting with me, uh, and now they're 21 and 23, and, we, and they've been able to take good deer, Don, and we passed a lot of deer uh, when they were young, and they pretty much shot whatever they wanted to. But at this time, uh, both of them have shot really, really good deer, and they're wanting the next generation, the next size of deer, when, when they're three or four years old, um, I, I hunt four different farms with them, and the property ranges from 10 acres. The biggest farm's 140-some acres. Um, our primary farm that we shoot a lot of our deer on is about 43 acres. 
with a tremendous amount of pressure in the area between 25 and 30 uh, deer hunters within a one mile radius of where we're at. In that, in that, with that area, we have a lot of 150 inch deer approximately at about a four year old range is about what they are, but some of them will get over 200, 180s, 170s. Some of them stick in that 150 range. As we start to try to manage those deer, how do you know when a deer is three or four years old, um, how do you know they're going to make it to the next level of that 170, 180 class type of deer larger? You, you know, uh, I made a comment earlier today that I learned things from these classes. Um, it, it, there's not one, one time when I sit here with a, a group of people in, in these classes that I don't, at the very least, I come up with an idea for another article. And they really get my mind working with some of the comments and questions. And the, I, I had a private group in here yesterday from uh, northern Indiana with a class. And uh, a guy made a very interesting comment that's really stuck with me since he said it. And it was just yesterday. But he, he said that what they've noticed years ago uh, when the captive industry started, the captive industry really started with wild deer. You know, they somebody caught a fawn or whatever and raised it. And, and all those captive deer are from wild ancestors. It's not like they're a different breed or whatever. They're, they're basically wild deer that have been selectively bred. Um, but he said back, he, he was an older gentleman, and he said that back when it started, there was a general rule in the captive deer industry that if a buck reached 140 inches as a two-year-old or 170 inches as a three-year-old, the odds were very good that buck was going to break 200 inches. And I'd never heard that before yesterday. And I thought that was very interesting. And it made me think of Mel, buck here behind me. And his shed antlers are right, right here on this table. You know, as a two-year-old, um, he, he was probably pushing 160 inches. And then, then as a three-year-old, he was already over 200. Um, uh, Smokey, the buck I shot Smokey, as a three-year-old, he was 170 inches. Um, and I, I didn't know that till yesterday, so I'm continually learning. I'm, I'm a, I don't consider myself an expert. I just consider myself a student that, that can't get enough. I just continue to learn. And I thought it was really interesting that if a two-year-old buck is over 140 and a three-year-old buck is over 170, their odds are very, very good that they're going to hit 200 inches. The problem is, is a lot of people won't stay off the trigger with a 170-inch three-year-old. Three yep, for sure. I'm one of them. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, really, I'm one of them. Huh. Net Booner. A Net Booner is a tough animal to kill anywhere. Hey, these I'm, guys, these guys at this table, I just, we were talking earlier, they lived down the road from where I graduated high school at, up really? in Michigan. Yeah, we got some of the same friends and acquaintances. We were talking about our buddy Phil Weldy at Weldy Sales and Service. Awesome. He, he was my uh, youth group leader in high school at church, and they, they know him. Pretty awesome. Cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. Small world. Uh, I'm Greg from Michigan, and my question is, as looking as being a young guy looking for like property to buy possibly for my future, what would you look for in a new property? What would you hope to see? And what are some things that you don't want to look or you don't want to see? Well, we're actually going to go over this tomorrow in the, the class. And I've got some, some examples, aerials of different properties, um, three specifically. 
and I ask everybody, uh, if you had your chance to buy which one of these three would you pick, one, two, or three, um, the thing to, to remember about a good hunting property is what's more important than that property is what's around that property. What's around that property is either going to make it or break it. Um, a good example is you can take a five-acre wide open field, and if it sits right next to a thousand-acre sanctuary where nobody's allowed to hunt, that five-acre open field can be dynamite. Um, so what's around a property is really more important than what's on it. Yep. All right, we got time for one more question. Anybody got one? Uh-oh, here we go. Go get you one. <laughs> it better not be a financial question. We're talking to an accountant no, here. Don Todd Covey from Kentucky. Um, put up a rope scrape last year, just exactly like you said, too. I bought the Smokies lure put on it one time, stayed out of there. Um, it did exactly what Terry told me it would do, inventoried every buck on the property. Uh, I had deer come to that rope scrape that never showed up on 10 or 12 cameras on the property. My question was is... It a, was all your cameras spy point? That might be why they didn't <laughs> No, show but up. the one that's on the rope <laughs> scrape is... <laughs> Oops, I said that out loud, didn't I? <laughs> I had the same experiences as Terry with the spy point. But my question is, now that that's been there for a year, is there a specific time that you go in and resent that when you do yours? And is there a bad time to resent it? Can you resent it too early or too late to expect to get those bucks in again? He teed you up for one of your topics. Oh, tomorrow. he did. That's another topic we're going to cover tomorrow. In fact, we are going to see a rope scrape that this buck here, I'm going to show you a picture of this buck working a rope scrape we're going to see the very rope scrape but as far as when i sent it to be honest once those deer start hitting that scrape you don't have to go back and send it ever not not next year not ever once they know where it's at and they start hitting it and i'm going to show you pictures uh tomorrow in the presentation of of scrapes that i've went back in in september it's my tradition on labor day weekend i move my trail cameras from summer feeding areas to fall rutting areas and that's when i'm putting them on these rope scrapes and there's been more than once i've moved in there the first um, you know few days of september and the scrapes already open under that rope the deer are already just hammering it um so if your scrape or if your rope is hanging in a good spot and you get those bucks hitting it you you never have to go back again all right well i'm glad we left extra time we're we're Almost to an hour and 20 minutes, but that's been awesome questions from everybody. I think so, yeah. This yeah. was a good one. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Uh, we, we were supposed to have 70-degree weather and sun tomorrow, but there's a small chance of rain now. Late, though. Late yes, today. but we'll be, we'll be done with our tours beforehand. So I hope we get that fire done before, get that burn done before it rains. Yeah. But. So we appreciate everybody being here. Um, you guys asked awesome questions. We really appreciate it. It's a whole lot more fun for us when we do that. And I know we joke around about different stuff, but that's okay. That's part of it. Yep. So thanks for everybody. Don's going to take us out with our sponsors. So we want to thank our sponsors, buyafarm.com, 360 Hunting Blinds, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, Victory Chevrolet, Matthews, Vortex Optics, Vengeance Camo, Quiet Cat, real-world wildlife products, and wildlife farming. See you next week, everyone.